Hey everyone, on this week's weekly recap, we are looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to Ephesians 2. That was our assigned reading this week. We're almost through the Bible. If you have been following along with us this year, we're almost there. We are so close. Uh, so congratulations for making it this far. If this is your first time here, I'm Corey. This is my husband, Matt Walk. How you doing? Good. Good. Yeah. Doing good. I'm excited to go through 2 Corinthians all the way to Ephesians. So let's jump right in. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's some really interesting teaching in this chapter. It's quite diverse. Uh, one of the teachings is how um, we as Christians, and, and the apostles specifically as well, are physically weak in order to show that the power of the gospel is not from us. So Paul's talking about uh, him in this in this moment, as an apostle, as, as a main teacher of Christianity, he says, we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in jars of clay. So this idea that you should have broken long ago and you haven't because there, there's a power that comes with the gospel that is God's power. So it's, it's showing the truth of the gospel through the inferiority of humanity, essentially. Um, it also, you know, Paul talks about persecution, illness, death sentences, all of these things prove that the transforming power of Christianity is from God. It's not from mere men. Um, I want to read to you verses 13 to 18. I'm not going to read it in its entirety. There are some skips in there. So read along if you want. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 13 to 18. It says, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. That's a quote of Psalm 116. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So this, this bravery to proclaim the gospel comes not from some benefit that they're going to get here on earth, but that they know that they will be raised with Christ in the resurrection, that we, they, we know that we have salvation. Uh, so focusing on the eternal rather than the, the temporal, what, what's here in front of us right now. Second Corinthians chapter five talks about how we are awaiting a new body. We will all face, all of us face the judgment seat of Christ to account, all of us Christians, to account for what we have done in this life. It talks about how there is great hope uh, in, in Christianity and in following Christ. There is life after death. There is good life after death. There is a moral, loving, true life. Uh, you know, it also challenges us to to change our perspective here in Second Corinthians chapter five. How people will criticize Christians just as they're criticizing Paul and Timothy for being out of their minds. You're just crazy 
for your willingness to suffer for the gospel, but how that we need to be bold as Christ's ambassadors. We've been reconciled to God and we need to urge others to also be reconciled. We are representatives of God to this earth. We are ambassadors of Christ. So we, Paul and Timothy encourage us in this chapter not to focus our hope here on this life. How can I make my life better now? What can I get now, but instead have your hope firmly rested on the next life so that you can focus on your mission as an ambassador for Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, they let us know that as apostles, they're working really hard to not put stumbling blocks in anyone's path to salvation. So that means that they have endured many physical and emotional difficulties in their life. Um, Verses 3 to 13 really should be read carefully by all of us. Uh, It contains a challenge for us to think outside of our self-centered, me-centered, individualistic society and swap it for the true mission of Christianity. And while that's not an easy switch to make, we're promised that it offers forgiveness, purpose, joy, and internal peace. So what good thing is easy to do, right? Um, There's also an admonition for the Corinthians to be open-hearted and to be loving as a family toward Paul and Timothy. Let us be a family of Christians um, and don't be joined or yoked with unbelievers. Don't become family with with people outside the church, but you really need to develop bonds uh, within the church as well. Second Corinthians chapter seven, uh, Paul addresses the results of a harsh letter that he had written to the Corinthians. So the Corinthians had actually had a good response to his harsh letter. Uh, their sorrow turned into earnestness and eagerness to clear themselves of sin. Um, There was a longing and concern and, and readiness to see justice, God's justice done. And Titus had returned to Paul and Timothy and told them what was going on in Corinth as a result of Paul's earlier letter. Uh, and it showed, this showed Paul that the Corinthians really wanted to follow the true gospel. So this is a good thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul encourages the Corinthians to give financially as well. He begins with how the Macedonian church was um, was giving. He's like, look at them as an example of godliness. He says in verses seven to nine, the last half of verse seven to nine, he says this, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So what he's talking about here is how self-sacrifice, self-sacrifice, is an indicator of true love. If you actually love someone, you will sacrifice yourself for them in many different ways. And when it comes to finances, self-sacrifice is relative. 
right? Something that's going to be a sacrifice for one person isn't going to be a sacrifice for someone else. Uh, Verses 13 to 14 says this, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. So the idea here is that this giving for the Corinthian church or from the Corinthian church, needs to be voluntary. We are not to command Christians to give. It's a test of their own faith, whether or not they will see the needs of other Christians and give or whether they won't. Um, all right, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, generosity is encouraged. It's the idea that generosity creates overall good attitudes. So thanksgiving, praise to God, and uh, operates as a really good witness of your salvation, of your of, of, of you being changed inwardly. So again, this is not, um, Christians aren't compelled to give. They shouldn't give begrudgingly. Things, offerings should be given out of love, um, out of thanks and obedience to God, not because we want something from God in return. Not because if I give now, God's going to give me lots of things back or in equity. That's not what it's about. But in thanks and in obedience, uh, and, and in love, we should be given. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul launches into this really interesting defense of his ministry because of the people who had come to Corinth in order to discourage, to not discourage him, but discredit him specifically as an apostle. So there's this accusation that Paul is nice and timid and gentle and really unimpressive when he's teaching in person, but He's really bold and weighty and angry when he writes in his letter. So he's being accused of being a divided personality here. But Paul's response is that he's bold in his letters because he's responding to topics that require bold responses, harsh correction, and that he hopes that the behavior will be corrected by the time he physically gets to Corinth so that, again, he can be gentle and timid in his attitude. Uh, so it's just, it's just, you know, you know, as a parent, you understand this, right? When your kids misbehaving, you deal with them in a certain way, and when you're just when you're playing at the park, you you're you're different. It doesn't mean you're a divided personality or you're a split personality. It's just different situations call for different attitudes. Okay, Second Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul is worried that the that um these people who are calling themselves apostles, these so-called apostles, will succeed in deceiving the Corinthian church into accepting an altered gospel. So there's false teachers that are coming into Corinth, uh, and he's worried that they're going to convince the Corinthians of a different gospel. Paul explains why he did not and why he does not want to make a big deal out of his apostleship, out of his leadership, and specifically why he did not take financial support from the Corinthians personally while he was with them, but rather accepted it from the Macedonian Christians. He talks about all the persecutions and difficulties he experienced thus far um, in spreading the gospel. And he talks about how it's not about his strength, but rather it's about God's strength. So again, this is a defense of his ministry. In 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul talks about people who have had visions and also how he has a physical problem that uh, has kept him humble. It's keeping him humble. God will not heal this physical problem of his so that he stays humble. It's a thorn in his flesh to remind him that it's not because of Paul's own greatness that visions come or that people get saved, but rather it's it's 
God. Uh, Paul also admits that he's worried to come back to Corinth. He's worried that he's going to see unrepentant sin when he gets there. So basically, clean up your act, guys. I'm worried about you. In 2 Corinthians 13, this last chapter of of 2 Corinthians, this is Paul's second warning. And his visit will be the very last warning that he gives. Paul is going to deal with Christians that are involved in sinful lifestyles. He says this in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So are you? Are you saved? Ask yourself these questions. Self-reflect. And then at verse 10, he says, This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority that God gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. I don't. He doesn't want to use his authority to tear down the church. He wants it to be built. And that finishes up 2 Corinthians. Okay, let's power through Galatians as well. Anything you want to say before we move on to Galatians? No, this is good. You're good. A good job. I'm powering through. Oh, I know. You're doing a good job. So just keep, <laughs> keep going. Keep up Taking a swig of water. I'm yeah. like, say something so I can drink. <laughs> We're on a race, okay. as Paul says. Run the race. Okay. <laughs> Galatians chapter one, we find out that this book was written from Paul to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. Uh They also are experiencing an influx of false teachers. Paul says that these teachers are confusing the churches. um, And we're going to find out how they're confusing the churches as we continue reading. So Paul first gives an account of how he became an apostle. He emphasizes that he was called by God unusually and his life was completely changed. So he's establishing why he has authority as an apostle and where that authority comes from, right? Galatians chapter 2 continues the account of Paul's ministry. He talks about how he was accepted by all of the apostles, by James, by Peter, by John, by all of them. We get an account of a time when Peter came came to Antioch to visit and minister, and Paul confronted Peter because Peter was separating himself from the Gentile Christians again. So uh, the problem here is that do Gentile the problem that that Peter and Paul were dealing with at that time in Antioch was do Gentile Christians have to follow the Mosaic law in order to be true Christians? Do they have to become Jews to become Christians or can they be Gentile Christians? Um, Peter's own vision on this back in Acts chapter 11 and then the Holy Spirit's descent onto Cornelius uh, again in Acts 10 and 11 proves that no, Gentile Christians did not have to follow the Mosaic law. They did not have to become Jews to become Christians. And this is why Peter's actions in Antioch were called out as hypocritical because Peter began to separate himself from Gentile Christians when Jewish Christians were around. And Paul's like, whoa, what are you doing? Uh, And that whole account was right before the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. It was called in order to create an official position in the church on this issue, which it was. You can go back in Acts chapter 15 to check that out. Okay, Galatians chapter 3, the very famous line is in verses 1 to 4. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? 
So what's going on here is that the false teachers are telling the Galatian Gentile Christians that they also need to abide by the Mosaic law, by the law of Deuteronomy in order to be Christians. Uh, Paul goes on to explain that they're children of Abraham as well. The Gentiles are also children of Abraham, Gentile Christians, because Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness before he received the circumcision, which became a sign of the Mosaic Covenant later on. It became a sign of the law to later Jews. Uh, It talks about how Christ fulfilled the law. So when we as Christians come to Christ for our salvation, we put on his righteousness. He fulfills the law for us. We then become heirs of the promise of salvation equally. So that's why he can say in Galatians, there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all Christ. We've all put on his righteousness in that sense. Galatians chapter 4 He talks about how we have been redeemed, uh, meaning we've been bought like a slave whose life was sold. Now we have been bought. We have been redeemed from that slavery, except we've been redeemed from the law. We've been adopted as sons of God. And so there's this concept, Galatians, you've been freed from this. Why would you then want to be enslaved all over again? Uh, Paul talks about Hagar and Sarah, the, the wives of Abraham, figuratively to represent the law and the promise of God. Hagar representing the law, Sarah representing the promise of God. And he's saying, be children of the promise, not children of the law. Galatians 5, uh, there's a very famous verse that has recently wildly been taken out of context. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Free from what? Free from the law, not to go back to it. We are no longer slaves. We are heirs. We are adopted as children of God. We have come under God's authority in a different way. If you follow the law for your salvation, you abandon Christ as your redeemer of that salvation, someone who has bought you. It's a very dangerous thing to rely on your own works for salvation or righteousness because it doesn't work. Only faith in Christ works. So Paul teaches all about this and then he he deals with a seemingly obvious loophole and probably one that the false teachers were really ragging on where uh, if we have freedom we will then sin okay so Paul says this you are called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh rather serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, And this goes into what it means to walk by the Spirit. There's a list of the acts of the flesh, just in case we needed to know, right? All these bad things. And then after that, we have the very famous fruits of the Spirit. So when you're walking by the Spirit, when you're not walking according to the flesh, what does that look like? We see these fruits of the Spirit in your life, these things that grow in your life organically. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And none of those things go against the law of Moses. They rather are fulfillments of it. So what's amazing about that line itself is that the law of Moses is fulfilled by loving your neighbor, the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself, right? That's a powerful statement. That's what Christ did. Christ said, what's the greatest command? Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, Mm -hmm. and love your neighbor as yourself. Those Mm -hmm. two, right? Those two combined. 
in conjunction with each other. And what's amazing about that is that Christ did not come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. And we're supposed to be like Christ. So there's this parallel of what this, does it mean to love and all this idea here. And you're fulfilling the law. And when people get hung up about the Sabbath and all these different rules that the law has, what do you mean you're, you're fulfilling the whole law? It's like, well, Christ says you're fulfilling the whole law by loving your neighbor as yourself. Right. That's instead of right there. So all these fights, all these bitter fights about silly little trivial details, right, mm-hmm. are just completely missing, once again, the hierarchy that's been established in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Christ first, right? And then all these other, like, works that you have to do are not as important as that, mm-hmm. right? So it's like the things, we've kind of just really missed it, right? We missed the force of the trees, essentially. Um, but it's really important to see that because without this loving our neighbor as ourself, you can't fulfill what the Old yeah. Testament's saying. Yeah. And this is precisely what Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the prophets are talking about when they, when they were giving sacrifices but loose-lipped, and like it meant nothing. They were just mm-hmm. offering sacrifices because there's a thing to do as if somehow the, that work of offering a sacrifice or the work of getting circumcised was somehow salvific or it was an advantage to them because God told them to do it and therefore they're just complying. Mm-hmm. And so you have this whole beautiful relationship between faith in the Old Testament was always present. Yes, it Always was. present. And that's what he's talking about, Abraham and everything. Mm-hmm. And then here he's just talking about, look, it's basically nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. But what has changed is that the law, the Old Testament law, is being fulfilled by you loving your neighbor. That includes if you're a Jew and it's Samaritan. Mm-hmm. That includes if you're a Jew and there's a Gentile, right? Mm-hmm. Inclu- Christ includes all of them. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the power of that statement obviously is radical. It's obviously radical. But it's also living your life as a living sacrifice as well. It is. It's 100% yeah. that. And it, yeah. we've kind of lost it. We kind of today have made it not about a living sacrifice. We made it like, well, I feel for you. Mm-hmm. And it's so much more than that. It's it like it's an action word. It's like I'll give my life for you. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is a little scary to some people because you're like, what do you mean? Who am I to you? Why do you mean you give your life for me? I didn't mm-hmm. ask you to give your life for me. That's kind of like some of the attitude that you kind of the polemic that you mm-hmm. hear. But it's what we're called to do. It is. Yeah. It is. And this is why it's so important that we we do what the scripture says and meditate on the word of God. Right. Not empty our minds, but fill our hearts with the law of God and with his morality and really um, take our time and think about it and self-reflect, which is encouraged all the way throughout the Old and the New Testaments because this doesn't just come naturally to us. Yeah. Loving our neighbor as ourself does not come no. naturally to us. You know, loving some people as ourself does come naturally to us. You right. think of like, me and you and our kids. Right. Like that comes way more naturally to us. It's instinctual. Right. To protect our kids and love our kids and want the best for right. our kids. But it doesn't happen instinctually with everyone else in our lives at first. Right. Right. We need to, we need to be thinking deeply on these issues and meditating on the scripture and meditating on these concepts and praying through with God. How do I do this? Right. Am I doing this in this area? You know, different when I go to church. Am I connecting with people? Am I, how can I love people like I love myself when I go to church, when I go, all of these different things, asking right. these things of ourselves, self-reflecting. And, and what's really good about this too is this the royal law mm-hmm. itself. It's not saying love others more than yourself. Yeah. It's saying love as. others as. And the reason why that's so important there is because as image bearers, you shouldn't be loving other people more than yourself less. That's just, that's a false self-deprecation. Right. You create like an imbalance there. It's like God loves all people. Mm-hmm. So the concept is like, therefore, love 
people as God loves people. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of a basis for equality. Mm-hmm. So it's like all these people who are, once again, getting upset about, you talk about people misusing freedom earlier, um, people getting upset about this, the, the, the laws themselves. It's like, well, the law is predicated on loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. If you Equality doesn't exist without that law. You can't even have it. So it's it's an amazing thing to think about that, you know, uh, entire Western society that the law itself predicates, as Paul was saying, the the fruit of the spirit. It predicates you need that first. Otherwise, yeah. you can't have law at all. Right. Let alone just the works of the law. Right. Anyways. All right. Let's recap the last three chapters. So this is the last chapter of Galatians. Galatians chapter six, where Paul encourages uh, Christians to help people who help other Christians who are caught in sin, but be very careful that you also don't sin as you're trying to help the person in their sin. He talks about not being arrogant. Um, and he says, you know, do not be, do not be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. So a little bit of farming imagery for us, which is helpful. Um, Paul also exposes the true motives behind these false teachers. He says they don't even follow the law. They want circumcision to boast about it so that they won't be persecuted. Essentially like we're Jewish too. Don't persecute us for like changing the law. We're like, so they wanted to fit in. They wanted to please man. Now, like at that time, it's important to recognize that Judaism was a tolerated religion within the Roman Empire. And as Christianity was be, was distinguishing itself from Judaism, there was difficult times that were arising with Jewish officials. Is this a new religion? Is it part of Judaism? What's going on? So there's, there's factors here where, where some Christians are motivated to stay a part of Judaism, uh, you know, to, to protect themselves and their families, which is a very understandable thing, but they need they needed to be careful. So Paul was emphasizing here to focus on pleasing God rather than man or even yourself. Um, he says that nevertheless, regardless of all of these things, these teachers were causing genuine confusion over the gospel, whether Christians truly did have to follow the law or not. And Paul distinctively says, with the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, they did not. All right, the first two chapters of Ephesians, and then we'll be done for the week. So Ephesians chapter one, Paul is writing to Christians in the city of Ephesus. Uh, This contains his intro where he talks about God's plan of salvation, how Christians experience the amazing blessings of God's redemption and forgiveness, and how Paul continuously gives thanks uh, for the Ephesian Christians, and he prays that they would know God even more. And he does this with his classic Paul style. Lots of flourishes. You should read it if you if you're if you missed it and you're getting caught back up. It's really interesting Ephesians chapter 1. So then Paul goes on to talk about how Christ was raised to the right hand of God the Father and given all power and authority as the head of the church. In our last chapter today, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul then switches from talking about Christ and his authority, and he brings his attention to his audience. He says, as for you, Christians, you were once dead, just like those living in the world now, but now you are alive. You are different from them. And he's going to say, so be different from them, right? Verse five, he says, but because of his great love for us, God, 
who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So he talks about how God has raised us with Jesus in heaven and we will see his grace and his kindness in coming ages. So then he emphasizes how salvation is attained, how it's how, how it's reached, and how it works. Uh, it, it says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in other words, we have been remade. We have been reborn and God has a plan for us. He has a purpose for us. And that purpose is to do good works. The good works are a result of our salvation. They are not the cause of our salvation. Uh, He also goes on to talk about how Christ's work has also destroyed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles are all saved the exact same way. We access God through Jesus Christ. There is no more Jew or Gentile in Christ. So that's Ephesians chapter two. This week, you're going to read the rest of Ephesians if you're keeping up with your Bible reading to reach the end of the Bible by the end of the year. I hope you have a good week reading. If you have any questions or comments, pop them down below and Matlock and I will get to them this week. See you later. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.